Hi and welcome to the Girl Next Door podcast. I'm your host Renee Bennett and this is a leadership podcast for ordinary girls compelled to lead an extraordinary life. Make sure you come and find me on social media, girlnextdoor.podcast. Hey guys, welcome to our last installment of the Transgender Collection. Thank you for sticking with me the last couple of weeks and for all of your um, encouraging messages, which has been great. Um, I really, truly, truly appreciate it. Uh, Now, I feel like I say this every week, but so much to get through today, especially because I probably wanted to do four episodes on this, but with Christmas coming up, etc., I thought I'll just stick with three. Now, as you know, we've been making our way through a book on transgender, um, particularly the phenomenon amongst teenage girls. And I'm going to divert a little bit today because I want to talk about a different perspective. Um, I want to look at how we are to think about this topic as Christians. Uh, You know, what do we do about things like pronouns and this craze of identifying our pronouns, which I see so many people, even like non-transgender people doing this on their Instagram, for example, and how are we to confront this issue or talk about this issue as leaders? So that's what I want to get through today. If you want to continue exploring the book with us, which I am continuing to do offline on, well, online, I guess, on Facebook, then um, like I've said in the last couple of weeks, come and find me on Girl Next Door Book Club on Facebook and the conversation is continuing there. All right, so here we go. Um, Have you guys noticed how we're not allowed to mention this gender identity ideology and the fact that it doesn't align with what we know about biology. Now, I mentioned last week that students need parental permission to be given Panadol at school, but not to change their identity. And the links for both of those, by the way, are on my Facebook page. But just before we get started about the biblical and cultural uh, look at this topic, I wanted to read a bit from the Education Victoria website. Thanks, Victoria. You give me so much um, content (laughs) Uh, because it is so astounding to me. And I'm really beginning to wonder where all the Christian leaders and politicians are in Victoria right now. Can I just say, if you're a young person interested in politics, we need you. We need you in politics, especially if you're, you know, a Christian. Honestly, I think society needs you guys. So I read the other day, also that the Victorian government is one of the most socialist leftist governments in the world. Oh, well done, Australia. Uh, Anyway, I just want to read a bit to you from a document. The links to this, like I said, are on my Facebook page, but you can look it up also. It's the LGBTIQ student support policy document. And I want to quote a couple of things out. Firstly, I quote, schools must work with students affirming their gender identity to prepare and implement a student support plan. Sorry? Schools must work with students. Uh, I don't read anything there about parents. What about the psychologists? Anyone considering any professional medical uh, opinions here? Any experts involved? But no, schools are basically saying that they will implement gender affirming identity um, uh, programs with just the student. Now, I just want to remind everyone that schools are only caretakers temporarily. 
for seven years in primary school and only six years of high school, and yet they're supporting changes that are going to affect these young people for the rest of their lives with no parental or professional advice. This is crazy to me. Here's another quote. The school should consider the use of toilets, showers, and change rooms that meet the needs of the student. Excuse me? I get that, but what about the needs of my student, my sons, my daughter? Don't they also use these toilets, these showers, and these change rooms? I continue. If no agreement can be reached between the student and the parents regarding the student's gender identity, or if the parents will not consent to the contents of a student support plan, it will be necessary for the school to consider whether the student is a mature minor. If a student is a mature minor, they can decisions for themselves without parental consent and should be affirmed in their gender identity at school without a family representative or carer participating in formulating the school management plan. I didn't realize that government could now step in in the place of parents. I this just absolutely guys this is on the Victorian Education website. Forgive me, I thought we had a duty of care to minors to acknowledge their immaturity, to acknowledge their underdeveloped frontal lobe and therefore to protect them from their own vulnerability. And can I point out, this is not just in high schools. A mature minor could be an eight-year-old. How silly of me to assume, I guess now mature minors can start to live on their own, take care of themselves, since apparently they can decide to change their own gender. I guess a mature minor can now decide that they would like to, I don't know, drink alcohol, start smoking, maybe drive a car. Guys, you don't have to have a platform like me to start standing against this stuff. If each of us does what we can where we are in our own place and space in the world, I just am so sad in my heart at how things have gotten this far. But you know how they've gotten this far? Because someone sat in a policy meeting and didn't say no. Because teachers sit in staff meetings and stay silent. Because parents don't gather together and say enough. Because we don't all march down the doors of our politicians and p- politicians or send emails and say to them, what the heck is going on? So how do we stand up to the world knowing what we will be called? You know, I said last week that one of my favorite podcasters made a really great point that If we choose to be culturally compromising, then we also have to, have to be theologically compromising. Even people who don't subscribe to Christianity or the Bible would acknowledge that a lot of the basic building blocks of society have been built on the wisdom and morals taught in the Bible. I mean, the golden rule You don't have to be a Christian to know what the golden rule is of treating others the way that you want to be treated. There's so much that comes from the Bible that has built our society um, to things like the family being paramount to the stability of society, to looking after your neighbor, to don't go be a drunkard, to look after our environment and even things like the definition of marriage, which has now changed, by the way. 
But now really quickly and swiftly, the basic moral fabric of our society is being undermined and this whole gender ideology is just another. But if a Christian is not able to say confidently that a man is a man and a woman is a woman and God made us male and female, then I don't know how we as Christians can stand up for anything else. That's what I meant before about if you're willing to compromise culturally, then you have to go against the Bible to do so. And then where's our Christianity then? If we can't even say the basics of scientific reality and biblical truth, a truth, by the way, that's been accepted for millennia, then how can we stand up for the gospel, which, by the way, is far more offensive than gender um, identity? That if we don't believe in Christ, then we won't receive eternal salvation. Like that is far more offensive to say that Jesus is the only way, the truth and the life, and that no one can come to the Father but by Him, that is far more offensive. The gospel is the most offensive part of the Bible, not gender roles, not the definition of marriage, but the fact that Jesus basically calls us sinners and calls us to repentance. That is offensive to those who don't want to believe that. And the fact that we believe that we're in need of salvation that only comes through Jesus. But we have a culture that is floundering in confusion, I mean, they don't even know anymore what a man is or what a woman is. Our truth is far easier. And it does hurt to push back on someone that we love or to engage in these gender conversations because we don't want to be told that we are unloving and unkind. But there is so much of a need for clarity, not just in culture, but actually in our churches. And it's not anything to do with me being braver than you or anything like that. But I'm just, I feel such a conviction on this because I know that this is not going to lead to young people being more free. So let's have a look at a couple of biblical thoughts about this whole topic. Um, If you want to look into this further, there's a couple of books. Nathan Finocchio has recommended these. Uh, There's a book called God and the Transgender Debate. Um, And then there's also an article he talks about called Responding to the Transgender Revolution by Rob Smith. So maybe go look those up. All right. So when we as Christians are talking about our identity and discovering who we are, we look to God for that. Um, You know, who, who has God created me to be? What's the purpose for my life? Why am I here? What is God's plan for my life? But the secular view is not about asking who am I, but instead, who do I choose to be? Now, for us, there are some basic things that we believe scripture makes the decisions for us, like our gender. So the question is, can we sever our biology from our gender? That is really key to the whole conversation. Can we sever our biology from our gender? So can I have female anatomy, but be a male or vice versa? Can we sever our biological physicality, how God made you, from your gender? So let's take a look at a theological reflection on biology. So firstly, we believe that God made everything and he's the authority on who we are. And that's a really big um, difference, I think, in our worldview is that we believe that God is the authority on who we are, whereas the world is saying you are the authority on who you are. 
but we believe the authority is not ourself. It's not our feelings. It's not what sounds good. It's not what modern psychology says. It's God, and God has made us according to a very specific design. And that is how we're supposed to live, according to design. And when we do that, that is what brings us the greatest freedom, the greatest happiness. Now, it doesn't mean that we have the perfect life in that hard times, um, that we don't encounter hard times. Um, you know, it doesn't promise us, Jesus doesn't promise us that we're always going to feel good. But what we will always do is trust in God. So I want to offer you three thoughts from the Bible that will help you know um, or help guide you on how we're to think about the gender debate. And then I want to go into a little bit more about our body and then pronouns and how we can approach this as a leader. So here's three quick thoughts. The first one is this. Um, Number one, men and women are the only two genders that God created. Okay. So if you have a look at Genesis chapter five, verse two, and this is backed up in Matthew 19, four and Mark 10, verse six, the Bible says he, God created them male and female and he blessed them and called them human. Okay. So that's the first approach to this whole gender ideology is that from our point of view, from a biblical point of view, men and women, male and female are the only two genders. That's number one. Number two is this, that our two genders, male and female, are made for each other. So if we look at Genesis 2.24, which says, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. So our biology or our anatomy determines the expression of our sexuality in marriage. So if you are male, God designed you for a female. And if you're a female, God designed you for a male. And the third thing that we can um, see from the Bible is we have binaries operating here, that our gender is not non-binary, it is binary. So in that same scripture, you see a male becomes a husband and a father, And a female becomes a wife and a mother. Because if you read that again, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. So you've got this whole thing here of of male, husband, father, female, wife, mother. So therefore, it's not fluid. A male doesn't become a mother. A female doesn't become a father. So they're the three thoughts, okay? So men and women are the only two genders that God created. The two genders are made from each for each other, and the genders are binary. So let me make a couple of conclusions here. The Bible teaches, therefore, that our biological sex determines our gender. Okay, just let that sink in for a second. Our biological sex or our, our actual anatomy determines our gender, But the world teaches our feelings or our mind determine our gender. So there are your two different worldviews. So my biological sex determines my gender, which therefore determines my role in life. And this doesn't change. It's not fluid. So how do I know God's will and purpose for my life? How do I know my identity, who I am? How do you know? Well, depending on what you're born with, I'm a male. I'm a male. Oh my gosh, I am a female. How do I know? I know that by my anatomy and my chromosomes. By the way, so God's will is for me to marry a man and multiply. So God's will is for me to be a female and therefore a wife and a mother. 
Um, I'm not a male, so my design is not to be a husband or a father. Now, all sorts of things go wrong for us in life, um, but the Bible offers no support to the idea that one can be a man trapped in a woman's body or a woman trapped in a man's body. Now, that might be someone's subjective feelings, but it's not an objective fact. So God's will and path for your life and for my life is uncovered by our biological sex. Biological sex determines your gender, determines your role. Now, I don't want to take away from the fact that there are some people who have a genuine and deeply distressing illness called gender dysphoria, or there's perhaps those very few people that are born as intersex. And our first response for those who suffer is compassion and care. And in that case, it's a non-moral issue because it's not a sin for them to experience it. It would be a sin to act on it, but they didn't choose this. So we need to be patient with people because these are deeply distressing issues and we need to help um, to help them and to love them. But we also must speak our truth and that's going to take courage. But I saw a, a great quote the other day about courage um, and it really embody, embodies how I feel. And it said that courage is not the absence of fear. And this is, the, I've heard that before, but I haven't heard this bit. But rather, it's the judgment that something else is more important than fear. And that's really how I feel about this that there's something else that's more important than me being afraid to speak out. You see, when I read things that God says in the Bible, I know that abiding by this is the best thing for me and for humans in general. The nuclear family, for example, was God's idea. It is not a Western prescribed idea. It's found right back in Genesis in that verse I shared above. And you know what? All the research, all the research points to the fact that God is right. The best way to raise a child is in a nuclear family with a father and a mother. So if God is telling us that his design is that we've been made male or female, that we've been made for one another and we're made to multiply, then that is the best thing for us as humans and to live any other way will bring a consequence into our lives. Can I just say, guys, that um, you you might be told that that's not loving to think that way. But that's the wrong definition of love because love is not agreeing with someone. Like Cameron and I disagree all the time. It doesn't mean we don't love one another. Love does not mean you always agree. And humility, by the way, is not pretending that you don't have an opinion of something. Like just to say, oh, I don't know. I'm not sure about that. that that's not real humility. We're not talking about my truth or your truth here. We're talking about the truth, God's truth. And I want us to encourage us not to be, you know, intimidated. Um, I do know what I think about this. I'm not undecided. I'm not confused and I won't go with the flow and I won't be fooled and I won't be bullied into compliance and bullied into believing that this is hate and that telling God's truth is hate. I will love my neighbor according to how God tells me to love my neighbor, not how culture tells me to love my neighbor. Just remember that nothing can out-truth God. He is the truth. All that is true, God is the source of it. Our morality is not decided by mainstream culture. Otherwise, our morality would change every year. With every passing different fad, our morality would change. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His values, His truth never changes, and neither does our morality, despite what mainstream culture might be telling us. Is decided by God. The cultural warriors can't dictate what we must believe or what the new reality is and that nothing exists outside of what they say is true. 
And we can't be afraid that if we oppose this, that we're going to be censored or threatened or fired or ostracized. Although, mind you, in Victoria, it looks like soon you might go to jail or get a hefty fine. But men and women not being defined by biology, but by self-identifying, that is a brand new truth. That's just something here that that um, mainstream culture is telling us. By the, by the way, the actual idea is not new, but it's newly mainstream. And it's also new how dogmatic that it's become. So the secular view tells us who we really are is what we feel and our body doesn't tell us anything. But that's the opposite to what I've just said to you before, where God clearly by design, our body tells us a lot. God doesn't do things without great thought, process, and order. There is a specific design to everything he created. Everything he was cre- He created was done so with a purpose, with a specific plan. Look everywhere. You know, even things like the exact distance that the earth is from the sun is perfect so that we're not too hot, too cold. The design of every organ in our body and the way they function together, that's, that's been done with great thought and great process, even down to like the wing of a bird and the wingspan and the beak of a bird. Everything about a bird has been designed on purpose. The ecosystem that's thrown out if one thing goes wrong and the very fact that every cell in our body is stamped with male or female chromosomes. There is a design to everything. Now, we accept that with different parts of nature and uh, the body of a bird or, um, you know, the way that the world and the universe is put together. But it's brand new that in mainstream that apparently this no longer holds true for the human body. Apparently, it doesn't matter about the design or the science or the biology. We can do what we want. We can do what we feel. Uh, And this has been coming for a long time, guys. You know, we can sleep with who we want. We can abort a baby if we want to. And we declare that our anatomy tells us nothing about our gender. So we're teaching a generation to self-define and self-identify, but Christianity rejects that. We hold the fundamental view that God made the world with purpose and design and who he says we are, we are. And how he says our bodies should be used, they should be used. And when we use them in a way outside of that functional purpose, it dishonors the design and the designer, and we actually harm ourselves. Now, you can go back to my sexual gospel series or collection for a whole chat with a friend of mine, Nikki, about that exact thing, how he's designed, for example, sex um, to within marriage to, um, to be, you know, to be viewed in a certain way for our benefit. But the secular world says that our thoughts and our feelings matter, but the Bible actually says our bodies matter. So I just want to focus in on our bodies for a moment um, about how much our bodies and what we do with them matters to God. So if we look back at Genesis 1 verse 27, the Bible says God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So there's care and purpose that God was so specific in creating us male and female. And there's he's given us rules right throughout the Bible on how we should use our body. Even when you look at like the 10 commandments, not only how we use our body, but how we should um, be treating other people's bodies. You know, the Bible talks about in the 10 commandments, not, not murdering and not committing adultery. 
have a listen to probably one of my favorite scriptures, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12 to 15. It says this, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. It's a great one to teach young people and to teach your kids. Yeah, you can do anything. Anything is permissible, but is everything beneficial? All right, this scripture continues. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? God cares very much about our bodies and what we and other people do to them. We can continue in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 on to verse 18 to 20. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were brought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. But now culture is teaching people, oh, that's really toxic. What? You are not your own? Yes, you are. You don't belong to God. You're your own person and all this rubbish that I see on social media. The Bible says to glorify God with our bodies, that we are not our own. It tells us that our bodies house the Holy Spirit, that our bodies are a temple and we're called to glorify God with our bodies. The Spirit of God dwells in them and so therefore we're to look after them. Looking all throughout the New Testament, Jesus healed people's bodies. Jesus himself had a bodily resurrection. It wasn't a ghost that rose and that appeared to, um, I think it was about 500 people between when he rose and when he ascended. It was his body. Thomas felt the holes in his hand. The body matters to God. The body matters. Jesus took on a bodily form. Our bodies will be raised again. Romans chapter 8 verse 23 says, Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So we will have imperishable, eternal bodies when we're raised again, new and improved, made to last forever. So God made the body with both temporal and eternal significance. He cares a whole lot about the body and he cares so much about his creation. He's going to redeem it, including our bodies. So if he cares so much about our physical bodies, he cares what we do with them here on earth. And on the most fundamental basic level, acknowledging that our bodies in accordance to his design of gender is really important. Now, progressives will say that male and female um, don't mean male and female, but just represent a broad range of possibilities. But let me tell you something that's quite mind-blowing on what the Hebrew word means for male and female in Genesis. The Hebrew word for male in Genesis 1 is the word zakar, Z-A-K-R. And guess what? It refers to the male anatomy. Now, if you've got children in the car, you might want to block your ears, block their ears, put your earpods in. But basically it means being sharp. Okay. So I don't need to tell you what part of the male anatomy that's referring to, but it refers to the male anatomy and male gender. Now the word for female in Genesis is nequiba, N-E-Q-E-B-A. And it means 
whole, which refer, and I'm H-O-L-E, by the way, which refers to female anatomy. I don't need to explain anymore. And female gender. So what that means is God was very specific in Genesis when he said male and female. He's saying, hey guys, there is a sexual distinction between male and female. I'm not confused about this. There's no nuance and no other options here. Also, for this reason, in other places, scripture condemns the blurring of gender distinctions. For example, in Deuteronomy 22.5, it says, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does this um, is an abomination to the Lord your God. So the abiding principle here with different applications in various cultures is that women shouldn't attempt to look like men and vice versa. Again, in the New Testament, Paul tells the Corinthians that when praying or prophesying in public, men and women should wear attire appropriate to their respective genders. You can find that in 1 Corinthians 11, 4 to 10. So the norm for God's people is to celebrate and not obscure their God-given gender distinctions. Gender is assigned by God. We are gendered in every cell of our body. Do you know that a baby's sex is determined by their genes at conception? Let me say that again. A baby's sex is determined by their genes at conception. Our biology is written into every cell of our body. Now, are there anomalies and disorders? Yes, but for the vast majority, the natural and normal makeup of every cell of our body is gendered. And did you know that boys and girls develop differently in the womb? They have different hormones, um, there are even physical differences between a boy brain and a girl brain. So the fact that boys and girls are distinct, that our bodies are distinct, that means something. We're not just clumps of cells that we can decide to change when we want. Now, it doesn't mean that boys have to abide by every stereotypical definition of masculinity to really be a boy. And it also doesn't mean that girls have to fit every stereotypical definition of femininity to be a girl. But do you want to hear a huge irony here? It's actually the progressive gender theory that reinforces stereotypes. I'll say it again. It's the progressive gender theory that reinforces stereotypes because when a woman identifies as a man, she often does things to then look like a man, like cut her hair, wears different clothing, changes to a boy's name. And similarly, when a man identifies as a woman, he presents as feminine, often sexualizing himself with the way that he talks wearing makeup, the way that they dress. So they say that anatomy doesn't define their gender, but when they want to change their gender, they change their anatomy. Do you get that? They say anatomy doesn't define their gender. However, when they decide they want to change their gender, they want to change their anatomy to define the new gender they're identifying with. Huge amounts of hypocrisy. It literally makes my brain hurt. Um, So what happens is instead of trying to reconcile the mind with the body, what is happening today is we're told that we can reconcile the body with the mind by changing it, by maiming it, by giving it hormones, by having surgeries. So whereas the Bible is very clear, no, our body determines our biology, our biology, which determines our gender, and then we reconcile our mind to that. All right, let me talk about pronouns for a minute. Um, I see, 
I even see Christian people do this, which really surprises me. Um, like putting on their bio line on social media, their pro- their pronouns. So people say it's loving to agree and to use someone's preferred pronouns to affirm their new gender. But I just want to say, think about this. If we believe God and his gospel, then how can we say that affirming this confusion and this denial of reality and the hatred of their body is loving? So our affirmation of a lie about someone's gender, I don't see how that is love. Because the Bible tells us what gender really is in Genesis, and then the Bible also tells us not to lie, tells us don't bear false witness. So if the God of love tells us what gender really is and tells us not to lie, then it's not loving to call a biological male a she. Now, I understand, though, people's feelings. I do. And we can, maybe one way around it, is you can use their legal name instead. So if, you know, they were Charlie and they want to be called Jamie or whatever, um, you know, call them by by the name that they want. But pronouns actually do correspond to a biological reality. I am a female. I am a she, her. My pronouns correspond to my reality. And we're just lying if we affirm something that we can clearly see with our eyeballs is not true. So I also would suggest that we avoid giving our pronouns because even though that's not lying for me to say I'm a she, her, it's still agreeing with the idea that my identity, who I identify with, and my biology is separate and self-defined. And I've just given you half an hour's worth of why that's not the case, according to our um, biblical truth. We don't need to give an inch for that conversation. I will call them by their name, but not by a pronoun. All right. What do we do, though, as leaders, um, particularly when young people are concerned? So let me say this, first of all, that when we see someone who's denying their gender, um, it's not really our chief concern. And I'll talk more about this in a second. Our chief concern is their salvation, like it is every other person. So I think when we have these confusing wrong ideologies being taught so explicitly, though, throughout our society via social media, through mainstream media, through education, I do think we've got a responsibility, A, to remind parents of their role to specifically teach our children, because if you don't teach them, the world is going to teach them. But I think we also need to specifically teach some of these things I spoke about above in the church. It's probably time we really had that conversation about the way that God designed us from the beginning of time. The church is the place that the confused come for clarity and that the hurt come for healing. So I think we have a responsibility to understand the secular philosophy, but also to understand what the Bible says and why. And I think we do need to point to a different way. I think it's so important that we are compassionate, but that we're also clear. And also Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses. He wants to, and this is something I would tell all young people or anyone that comes into our church or under our leadership, he wants to take care of us. He wants to help us all to walk in freedom and obedience. He made our body. He loves our body. He gave us our gender and our sex in the womb, and he called it good. I'd also point out the world does not love you It just celebrates and affirms whatever is popular at the time. And that could change, by the way, in five years' time. 
They don't care about your soul or your body. That is why they celebrate the transitioners and you never hear about the detransitioners. As I've said before too, it's really important not to throw up an abrasive set of rules for young people. I've never done that with my own kids. And I would go about this the way I've gone about raising my own kids is to have conversations, point out research, use stories, have conversations that make sense, point out why we believe what the Bible says is truth. It's not about attacking an individual young person who's confused about their gender. In fact, that is the last thing that you want to do. You know, if camp is coming up and you need to have a conversation about where they'll sleep or what bathroom they'll use, you can have a reasonable conversation and come to a conclusion together. Remind them that you have the well-being of other young people to think about as well as them. Young people are beautiful. They are so reasonable when you sit down and you talk with them. When they know that you love them and you want the best for them, they will listen. I would tell them how worried we are, um, that this is an experiment on a generation, how not enough time has passed or research been done to know if this will cause long-term harm. I would use examples like in the UK who were all for it and had a 4,400% rise in the number of young people in the last 10 years seeking gender um, treatment to now them turning around and saying, there's not enough research for us to know if that's going to harm a young person. Point those things out. And where you can, I would approach it the way that I approach a student who is self-harming or struggling with an eating disorder. And that is, I wouldn't focus on that. And that's what I was saying before. It's actually not the chief concern. It's merely a symptom of something else going on deep inside them, a cry for help. You know, I don't focus on the cuts on their arms of a young person self-harming, as long as I know they're safe, by the way, of course. I focus on loving them as a young person, being a safe place for them, making sure that they know that I'm their biggest champion and advocate. But I think what we must do is we must be certain where we stand and be agents of love and truth and point people to Jesus, who is always the better option, whose burden is light. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So there you are. That kind of wraps up our transgender collection. Um, Thank you so much for listening. Uh, I know perhaps people listened that didn't agree, um, and that's okay. Uh, but if you, again, like I said, want continued discussion as the rest of us continue tracking through the book, then come join us on social media. Next week, I have a real treat for you. I live recorded a episode with Youth Alive South Australia director Hannah Long, and I can't wait to share that with you. And then I'm going to have a couple weeks off over the new year. And I can't wait then to be back with you early in the new year. But for now, I will see you next week. So have a fantastic week and thanks for joining me again. Bye. Make sure you come and find me on social media, girlnextdoor.podcast.